So I've been listening in classical music repeatedly to two recordings. Last week's Tarangalila has really kind of gotten into my head. You know, it's a big work, but I don't know. It's really something about it, you know? It's not a work I'd normally listen to, but that performance has really caught me. And also the Corellian Quentin one, the Baroque one with the flute. Oh, right, right. That one's kind of been in my CD player on repeat. I just, mm. uh, it has a good springtime feeling. I think I'm trying to invite spring in, you know? It's still kind of cold and rainy here, though. You know, it's interesting because we have to listen to so much new music. It's always on to the next. So yeah. it takes a special kind of recording to draw me back and make me right. want to listen to it again right away if it's the next week. Looking at our big chart of episodes so far, mm-hmm. we're well over 900 and Jeez. we're going to hit 1,000 before summertime, Mike. We've heard 900 albums. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's a reason for divorce if you're married. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we do here at Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We listen to lots of music and bring what we think is the best and most interesting recordings to share with you. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. Every week, bringing you six recordings, three classical and three jazz. And this week, it's episode 154. That's a lot of episodes. And it's hard to remember (laughs) all the music that we've talked about. So we're getting better at record keeping here. This week, we've got an interesting program of female composers in classical music and all saxophone leaders in the jazz recordings. And so I think all these are really good recordings that you're going to enjoy. And we're going to talk about those tonight. In the episode description, you're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we'll discuss so you can listen to it yourself. And also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer. So you can listen to the podcast on Deezer as well if you want to get everything in one place or hear their CD quality streaming music from France. Now, if you don't see the full description or the recording list or links are not easy to follow on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything is easy to follow for this and all previous episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, Follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. Help us get more listeners. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that also helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. You can come follow us on our Facebook page as well. See our handsome faces and get extra info and new releases throughout the week. I put up a whole bunch of jazz recordings this week. You can check out over there. They may or may not make it into a future episode. You can leave a comment or a message there as well. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can shoot us an email with any comments or questions. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We want to give a shout out to our friends as always, AJ and Johnny. At the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. They look at several versions of one new jazz standard in each episode. And they play little cuts from each version. Talk about Mm. the history discuss what they like and don't like, and you get a lot of laughs in their podcast as well. There's a link to their podcast in the description. If you stick around to the end of our episode, you can hear their little audio promo. Did you hear the last one that they did uh, about Jada? Yeah, I was listening to that this week. At at the end, they made a comment about us. They said, if you want to learn something, you go to them. But if you want to learn something and laugh, you should probably still go to them. (laughs) (laughs) So they gave us two compliments. I was really happy about that because we had to wait an extra week to get their episode (laughs) this time so i was looking forward to hearing it but they're great they shouldn't uh 
sell themselves short. It's really no. they're really fun and they're really knowledgeable about those old recordings. It's uh, it's yeah, it's yeah. an education for me because I haven't heard them all. I'm uh, my name isn't Russ, so <laughs> I don't know. Well, we're gonna have a lot of uh, standards pop up in the jazz segment later on tonight as well. So yeah, stick around for that. And we're also gonna play samples on our show as well as we've been doing. So here's our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. And we also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. All right. Are we ready? Because we have no news. We have no news, good or bad. <laughs> good or bad, which is, I guess, a good thing. A no good news thing. is always good news, they say. That's right. So we're going to get on to these recordings. Now, tonight, I have a theme, and the theme is all women composers. Right. Now, the thing that attracts me to women composers isn't that they're women, and I'm just really into women composers. It's that, <laughs> this might sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's because they're unknown composers, and I'm always seeking out the unknown mm. composer that's going to really knock me out. Right. A lot of times when you listen to women composers, that'll happen, and I think that happens tonight. So we're going to add some new music to our uh, listening uh, palette, I guess, oh, good. tonight. Our first album is called A Room of Her Own. Anyone can catch that reference from uh, the Virginia Woolf book, right. uh, A Room of One's Own. This is um, performed by the Neve Trio. Neve? N-E-A-V-E? Hmm. Okay. Anna Williams on violin, Mikhail Veselov on the cello, and Eddie Nakamura on the piano. And that's on the Chandos label, released February 2nd. Like pretty much everything I've done this month. <laughs> that was a it, big it's, day, yeah. It's not like jazz. Classical music seems to release like everything on the same day and then for the rest of the month. I mean, there's right. still other releases, but the major releases always seem to be on, yeah. the, on the same day. It's very strange. And this is a pretty long album at an hour and 23 minutes, but that's your win. And yeah. it was ours this week too. This is a really good album. Mm. It features how many composers? We have four composers and all of these were pretty great. The first one, one of my favorites really, uh, Lily Boulanger. She was a... Uh, Nadia Boulanger, the great teacher, also a composer in her own right, but uh, Lily was uh, the younger sister, and she had musical genius. She was going to be a great composer, but she died very young at the age of 24. She had been sick for her whole life, and Nadia lived throughout the 20th century and taught a lot of the great composers like Bernstein, Piazzolla, and others too, Philip Glass. <laughs> you know, They all went to study with her as well as others. Anyway, Lily Boulanger, her younger sister, the works we have here are called Deux Pièces en Trio for violin, cello, and piano. And we're going to hear both of them. The first one is called Dans Matin de Printemps, A Morning in Springtime. This was written 1917 to 1918. And this one starts out in a pretty sunny way. The piano starts with repeating chords as the violin, then cello, play the lively theme. I really liked the sunny feel to this. Let's get in the mood and just hear a sample of this right away. sure we got a little bit of the piano in there it's a little jumpy piece yeah and the piano gets a modal chord pattern afterwards and i love those those just draw my ear right in i don't know that's at about a minute and 46 seconds and then a quieter more mysterious section starts 
in the strings and builds to a climax. The opening motif is heard frequently in this piece and makes it feel solidly composed. Boulanger is highly creative in her orchestration of this material. She's only got three instruments, but finds all these intriguing ways to mix these themes in and get them to into interesting sonorities. I really love the modal moves and the piano chords, particularly towards the end. It's a powerful performance with good momentum by the Neve Trio. I really hope I'm saying that name right. Anyway, track two is the other of the deux pièces. This is Dansoir Triste. It's kind of like a contrasting piece. The first one was about morning. This one is about evening. It's a sad evening, too. Not as you know cheerful as that first piece. It starts with piano chords, too, but they're gloomy here, as is the slower cello theme. Uh, the piano chords, again, are mesmerizing in their harmonic spacing when the violin comes in. And this work is full of a mysterious darkness and drama. It's pretty unique and again, full of ideas. Uh, so much incident is squeezed into the 10 plus minutes of this piece that it seems like we're hearing a much longer work, and I mean this in a good way. Things just seem to play out, and you're just really interested, and it seems to last a pretty long time. This resonant piano sound, especially in the low end, and some great timbral combinations and effects, again, heard throughout. Lily Boulanger was a great composer. She was, I mean, she died so young. If she had lived into her 30s, 40s, 50s, you really wonder what she would have come up yeah. with. Some great timbre combinations and effects, particularly in the fifth minute. I want to sample something from the fifth minute of this piece. Ominous. Mm. Okay. Again, solidly composed with the opening motif threaded throughout in compelling ways. It's an excellent work and an excellent pair of works. We all need to get familiar with these two. They're really fantastic. We move on. Tracks three through six. Cécile Chaminade, another French composer. Trio number one in G minor, opus 11. I always love seeing trio number one because it means there's at least one more. <laughs> and uh, judging from this one, I'd really like to hear that one too. Yeah, I really like this one. Yeah, this one was composed in 1880. It's in four movements, and we're going to sample quite a bit of this, because I really like this as well. Now, 1880, we got to think, that's the Belle Epoque in France. Okay, so this is really before modernism came in, so there's a lot of romantic elements still in it. But it's more like foray, and this is about, um, in literature, this would be Proust's time, I guess. He, he was actually later, but he's writing about the ending of this period. Anyway, track three, the first uh, movement, Allegro. Uh, Chaminade is from the uh, previous generation to Boulanger's, but actually outlived her and is more romantic in her approach, as would be expected given the year this was composed. Now, Chaminade lived until 1944, and I would assume she changed her style to fit in with the 20th right. century. I, I doubt she composed in this style that we're going to hear in this piece throughout her career. She was younger when she wrote this. Now, the theme is laid out traditionally, but has an appealing melody and floating quality to it in the performance. All themes are highly appealing, and I especially liked the second theme in the uh, Sonata Form movement, and I've decided to sample that. So I'm going to go ahead a little bit to about the minute and 40 second mark, and let's hear that theme.
It's a really instantly memorable theme. This could be a yeah. this could easily be a staple of the uh, piano trio repertoire. The middle development section is sensitively played, with themes remaining highly melodic and mostly complete throughout. The opening theme returns at about six minutes and twenty seconds with its light dancing quality, and there's a dramatic final cadence. The second movement is an andante, the slow song-like movement. It's got a heartfelt melody from the cello to open, and the violin takes it over. Afterwards, it's developed and reorchestrated. There are some really romantic era moments in this movement, such as just before the three-minute mark. There's some really beautiful playing here from the Neve Trio 2, especially toward the end and just before the four-minute mark where some emotional moments are squeezed out of this harmony. Track five is the third movement, Presto Leggero. And Leggero, it is. Leggero means light. Let's uh, hear that quality right away at the opening. on listeners this is fantastic i know you're into this this is all one piece (laughs) so the piano has a light flowing figure and the strings play the short motifs over it and around 40 seconds a new more melodic theme emerges with triplets in the piano driving the rhythm this repeats with figuration in the piano the pianist has quite a lot to do in this movement you heard at the beginning that she was pretty busy there's a change of character at the one minute 40 second mark to something more assertive the opening material repeats at the end growing more assertive in the coda that leads to the light ending cadence. Track six is the fourth and final movement, Allegro Molto Agitato. It's got big chiming introductory chords opening the movement on the piano, followed by a theme in the strings. The theme becomes more aggressive as it goes on, finally breaking up for a rather pretty piano theme at a minute and 20 seconds that the violin and cello then take up. I'm going to go ahead to that section and we'll sample that. And by now you might have noticed that the tone and the ensemble of all of the players is just really beautiful and very attractive in in these uh, performances. This is true throughout the album. At 2 minutes and 51 seconds, the opening theme comes back. It gets more dramatic. And by the end, there's enough of a head of steam to get us to an exciting final cadence. Tracks 7 through 10. Another real discovery. This is uh, Germaine Taillefer. Her trio, the work is just called trio. It's not called piano trio or anything like Mm -hmm. that. It was written in 1916 to 1917, so the war years, World War I, and revised in 1978. Taifa, by the way, um, was born in 1892 and lived all the way to 1983. Wow. So uh, 
She's around 90, 91 years old when she died. So that's a good long life. Uh, Germaine Taillefer, she's always um, someone who's intrigued me because she was part of a group that was labeled as Les Six in France. And that included people like Darius Millot, Georges Auric, Louis Duré, Arthur Honegger, and Francis Poulenc. Right. And you know some of those names. And now we have uh, Germaine Taillefer. And I've always wanted to hear Taillefer's music just because she and, oddly enough, Louis Duré were the two composers whose music I'd never heard. Now we've heard Ty Affair's music, and I <laughs> still don't know anything about Louis Duray's music. <laughs> He's the only member of Les Six whose uh, music isn't really heard much. Now, Georges Auric um, composed a lot for the cinema, so we hear a lot of his film scores. Anyway, let's get back to Ty Affair. This is what we're talking about. This trio was originally a three-movement work, but in this revised edition, this is much later in her life, Ty Affair replaced the second movement, so it's a different second movement than the original work had. And she added a fourth movement. I'm not entirely sure if the writer of the booklet means that the third movement was the last movement, and then she added a movement to that, and that became the fourth movement. Hmm. Or if she inserted a movement, because it's hard to believe that the third movement of this work would be the end of the piece. It doesn't really sound like an ending. So I'm thinking that the, the third movement might be the new movement composers, but I don't know. I'm just guessing. Let's get into this. Track seven is the first movement, Allegro Animato. And this has a sensual opening gesture that drew me right in. Let's see if it draws you right in, listener. Let's uh, sample this. Stretching my arms in the morning after a long night. (laughs) That's what that feels like. It really captures that feeling well. Anyway, that theme breaks up into something cloudy and dreamy at the 52-second mark, then wisps of that opening float in the harmony, and we're taken to new stages of the composition. This movement, and also really the other movements in this work, change ideas fast. And I think that happens to a lot of composers in this period because... Um, The cinema, movies, were sort of a new art form that were very, very popular. And instead of, say, modulating from one key to another, people were starting to get used to the idea of like a scene, just cutting to another scene, and composers started doing that in their music as well. So it became sort of acceptable to do that, and that's why we have these ideas changing so fast. All of the ideas are appealing, too. At a minute and 50 seconds, we hit solid harmonic ground for a second appealing theme. And from this point, we start a bit of development and head to a final cadence in this rather brief four-minute movement. Track eight, uh, movement two, Allegro Vivace. This theme unfolds ceremonially in a stately fashion, but with a little too much energy to be truly ceremonial. It's more fun and sunny. The piano extends it. It's an appealing theme. And for the trio section, there's a slashing bowing sound answered by very quiet, creeping, bowed strings and piano. Appealing ideas abound here, and the opening repeats. Track 9, Moderato, this is the third movement. The piano soliloquizes with an opening solo, and then the strings come in and unfold a thoughtful theme. The theme starts flowing sensitively in the first minute, and winds down with some sensitive pauses in the second minute. Then in track 10, uh, movement 4, Tres Anime, 
This sounds a lot different than the rest of the work. This is probably the movement she added years and years later. The splashy piano part of the opening just sounds different. The theme sounds like it's in a hurry. So let's just sample that. Yeah, so it's good, but the, the character feels really different to me. Anyway, at 45 seconds, a new, slower theme starts. It's more appealing, and there's some odd harmony in there that makes the catchy theme sound a bit off-kilter. In a minute and 45 seconds, the theme picks up a livelier pulse and builds in tension with some quick and appealing harmonic changes. At 2 minutes and 35 seconds, the rhythm suddenly stops again and resumes as a trudge that slowly accelerates with bell-like sounds from the piano and then decrescendos. There's a simultaneous crescendo and accelerando that brings us to a blooming of the sound and a release of tension up to the final exciting chord. I like the way the movement ended, so I want to actually sample the ending as well. Yeah. Dramatic. Dramatic, fun. It's a really great piece. Now, we're going to move over to England. We The first three uh, composers were all French, and uh, Ethel Smith is English. And this is her trio in D minor, also from 1880. It's a four-movement work. The Allegro non troppo starts with a sighing cello line accompanied by arpeggiated piano lines. Let's hear how it begins. bit of a different sound world than what we've been hearing. Okay, so we heard that the uh, cello is joined by the violin, and then when the piano gets the theme, it makes it more dramatic. After a minute, the piano plays the second, more confident theme solo. The movement is well-constructed and seems to veer between the sensitively lamenting and bold confidence, two contrasting moods. After the four-minute mark, we're in a development section, uh, which builds up to some stormy moments that don't stick around for long, but are nevertheless dramatic. The material spends most of its time trying to extricate itself from its melancholy mood. We come back to the opening theme around the seventh minute, and they still feel a bit imbued with melancholy. There's an interesting coda in the last minute where some kind of respite seems to be found, despite the movement ending in a minor key. Track 12 is movement 2, and it's called Der Mutter der Einfachkeit, meaning the courage of simplicity with a question mark at the end. It's marked Andante, Scherzando, and then Poco Meno Mosso, and proceeds as a short theme and 
which sounded to me like variations on that theme. As its title suggests, the theme under review is simply phrased and harmonized. Now, this is a bit more upbeat with the piano playing the chastened yet confident theme. Uh, the themes are short and end with reassuring cadences. At a minute, we get an appealing melody. A fugato type theme starts at a minute and 45 seconds. Fugato means it starts as polyphony, so it sounds like it's going to be a fugue, but then it doesn't go that way. Uh, snapping into harmony that resolves at the end of phrases. The variations get into darker territory as the movement goes on, if they are variations, even slowing down and playing in the lower frequency ranges as though testing out these dark harmonic places. At 4 minutes and 24 seconds, a shimmering piano line snaps the piece out of the spell it has cast on itself and ends much as it began with a bit of caution. Track 13, a scherzo, this is movement 3, really is a genuine scherzo theme featuring fast staccato lines from the piano. Let's sample it. to this kind of almost like folk dancey type uh, melody there. The mood is kind of manic, as you heard, with a high stepping dance rhythm that sounds done out of excess pent-up energy than any kind of happiness. In a minute and 13 seconds, the trio starts as much lighter with a bit of a shimmer to it. It reaches a bright climax that melts back into the opening manic theme. The final movement, movement four, track 14, finale, has a bit of darkness at the beginning at the one minute mark, there's a beautiful second theme, very romantic in profile. This movement proceeds as a kind of rondo, maybe a sonata rondo. It sounds pretty complicated, but not one that's going to send us off happily. <laughs> this music is still working off its angst. That theme at one minute keeps returning as a soothing bomb, but the dramatic outbursts keep coming as though there's a struggle between inner darkness and light. The work eventually ends with a determined fortissimo resolution, one that suggests the darkness isn't overcome, but the protagonist is strong enough to live with it, or perhaps fight another day. And that's the album. All of the music on this album is a real find. Four chamber works to add to the repertoire of one's listening, as well as the performing repertoire. I really hope that piano trios will pick this music up. All four works are completely different in character and approach, yet fall appealingly on the ear and carry a bit of weight to them as well, though nothing excessive. Really beautiful and characterful playing here by the Neev trio throughout the album. The music couldn't possibly find more sympathetic interpreters. The album is an excellent way to discover the music of these composers, varied as it is. I'd encourage you to get to know all of these works. They're all a real discovery, as is the Neev trio themselves. I found them all really enjoyable as well. The Boulanger, I thought this work in particular, especially the second movement, was a bit dark and brooding. Yeah. And we've heard her music before, and I liked that previously better than I did this time. The highlight on this recording for me was the Chaminade. Mm. I just found her sense of melodies are wonderful, and this piece has a really uplifting final impression. That's part of the performance as well. And yeah, all the rest of the works are fine and fun as well. Maybe the Smith is a bit more romantic in nature, a little bit uh, insistently so with those kind of intense themes, but I like them as well. So yeah, really enjoyable trio playing, fine performance and nice sound quality on this recording as well. 
Yeah, everything about it is really great. This is uh, something to uh, look into. Okay, second on the classical list this week is a composer I've never heard of, Jeanne Leloup. She's French, and the album is called Une Consécration Éclatante, which means a dazzling consecration. The musicians on this album are Marie-Laure Garnier, who's a soprano. She sings the uh, songs that we're going to hear. Alexandre Pascal on the violin, Lea Henino, viola, Heloise Luzzati, cello, and Celia Oneto Ben Said on the piano. Now, she's important. She's going to be on every track on this album. She's right. the only musician that we hear all the way through. This is on the La Boite à Pépite label. La Boite à Pépite means the jewel box, and it's a label that records only women composers. So far, they've hmm. put out three albums of all French composers. Oh, no, actually, I'm not sure about that. I, the middle one, I forgot who it was. But I've got the uh, Sohi one, and that was pretty interesting. So I was really eager to hear this, too. This was released uh, January 26th. The label has released, as I said, three albums so far. This is part one of what's going to be a series. The album covers, of all three albums, of attractive, colorful line drawings of the composers featured on the album. The notes in the booklet are excellent. There are further illustrations in it, too. Texts for the songs are included. A lot of money and time was spent on the booklet presentation, making it very attractive and appealing. This is the way CDs should be done. Major labels take notice. It really takes a minor label or a smaller label. I shouldn't call it minor. A smaller label like this to do everything right. Especially, they seem to be on a bit of a mission to get these uh, women composers out there. The booklet notes go through Lelou's entire life story in some detail, and then go on to give extensive details on each work on the album. This really is a labor of love from the Boite Pepite record label. Yeah, so far, I have never heard of any of the composers that this record label has released. <laughs> so it's really something that I've really drawn to, because I always like to hear music by composers that I don't know anything about. Anyway, I'll keep it short. You can download the booklet notes for more detail. After reading them, you'll feel like you know the composer personally. Jeanne Leloup was a child prodigy playing piano repertoire like Chopin's Etudes with extraordinary musical comprehension. And that's really something, because when you hear young people play, even if they're really talented, they're generally working on a technique and there's not much feel in their playing. They're kind of mechanical, but apparently not here. As a child, she and Geneviève Duroni gave the premiere of Ravel's Ma Mère Loire for piano four hands. In 1923, after two failed attempts, she won the Grand Prix de Rome, which is a prize that uh, Ravel, Maurice Ravel, famously never managed to win. <laughs> and she won it, did Lelou, with her Cantata Beatrix, which is not heard on this album. This allowed her to live and compose in Rome for three years. In 1939, a journalist asked her, is it not a handicap to be a woman in your profession? Her answer was, I suppose it's a handicap in everything. <laughs> Some critics reproach us with a tinge of contempt for writing, quote, women's music, but I claim that music does not necessarily inherit the sex of its author. Chopin wrote women's music, and some women have a masculine style when the subject demands one. I have to say, I agree with her thoughts there. The booklet goes on to detail her works in life after this period, but focuses on works not on this album. A lot of her works, like the piano concerto discussed in the booklet, have been lost. After the biography, the booklet goes into the works that are on this album, which are all early works. Lelou wrote all of these when she was in her 20s. I imagine future volumes will cover the rest of her career. So these are all youthful works. Mm. And that's pretty amazing when you hear the first work, tracks one through three, the quartet for violin, 
viola, cello, and piano. So it's a piano quartet, written in 1922. This composition bears the title First Prize in Composition under the title, and it seems that a sketch of the first movement won the prize at the Paris Conservatoire competition, and this led to Lelou completing the quartet, so the entire quartet didn't win the award, but you want to promote your music. Anyway, the first movement, track one, marked très lente, and then vif, which is very slow and then fast, starts with a piano line that's picked up by the strings, and I should sample this so we can get into Jeanne Lelou's sound world. got that gentle chiming world opening the piece it's an appealing beginning with a modal feel to it as it stretches out fantastic spacious chords reminiscent of Debussy and the early 20th century French composers are heard the opening motif is often heard making the movement easy to follow you heard those two groupings of three notes they're gonna come back quite a bit a more active parallel style section begins in the strings with the piano picking up the themes short phrases then playing a more romantic melodic line that the strings comment on. The more aggressive theme comes back, and Lelou seems to want to work this out. So insistently does it remain. A tension-building section emerges in the fourth minute, resolving to the more of the uh, second aggressive theme, which by this point has really stamped its profile on this movement. At 5 minutes and 48 seconds, the theme reaches a tonic, there's a pause, then the solo piano plays a mellower, lullaby-like theme, which the strings come in to melodize over. The section is in contrast with what went before and is soothing, a pleasure to listen to harmonically as well. The piano changes to a new approach at 7 minutes and 50 seconds, light and a bit more playful in its rhythm and arpeggiated phrase endings. The strings repeat the theme, and it's worked out a bit. There's a crescendo before the 10th minute, and a climax is reached via phrasing like we heard at the very beginning. The piano plays emphatic chords, and the strings waft closing melodies into the air, ending the movement calmly and serenely. Track two, the second movement, Lent, is the slow movement, and the cello starts the melodic material here. Let's hear how this begins. that melodic theme sort of growing tendril-like throughout the uh, movement. Cello and violin start wrapping around each other with the melody as the piano sprinkles out patterns at the high end of the keyboard. There are some gorgeous chords from the piano at around the second minute just before it gets agitated and starts looking for a new key. The strings calm the piece down right away but the piano comes back and this time the strings respond at about the three minute mark. The piano's theme is taken up as a middle section but the strings, ever the calming effect in this movement, quiet it down again. The movement is full of appealing themes and harmonies. There's a crescendo. The theme repeats and tension is built up. 
It gradually slows down and leads to the moonlit final chord in the strings, which the piano comes to a bit belatedly. All is serene at the end again. So we have two serene endings so far. The third and final movement is Allegro. This is track three. Full harmony is played forte at the beginning. This is densely scored in contrast to the previous two movements. The strings saw out an ostinato rhythm as the piano plays a theme. Strings and piano trade themes for a while and build tension. At the three minute mark, the piano starts a theme with a playful rhythm. It turns out to be an ostinato and the strings melodize over that for a while. By 3 minutes and 45 seconds, dramatic chords start bringing the harmony to tension, and this section breaks up with a sudden string ostinato that the piano plays chords over at 4 minutes and 15 seconds. The movement really is aiming toward an already decided on point, and a lot of it involves tension building designed for a big release. So this movement has a definite telos to it, like a, a goal that it's moving towards. We get some of that at the five minute mark, after which the melodic material softens and starts moving to different keys. The piece reaches a satisfying cadence and ends strongly. Tracks four through nine are songs, the six sonnets of Michelange, or Michelangelo. It's from the 1924. This was composed in Rome after Le Lou won the Grand Prix de Rome. There's six songs, they're all in French. The first one, track four, Tout ce qu'un grand artiste. All that a great artist. It's accompanied by piano and this has a rumbling beginning, rather ominous, and goes on for a while until subsiding for the vocal 51 seconds into the piece. The vocal here has absolutely no room sound on it. It sounds dry, like it was recorded in an isolated location. Like it doesn't sound like the piano and voice are in the same room. It kind of sounds like it's they were separated in a studio. But the vocalist is fine. Marie-Laure Garnier has a tone with some darker color to it. It's a voice with more dramatic quality to it than beauty of tone. It's on the heavy side, and the recording could have let the vocal timbre breathe more. That said, you can hear all of the nuance of the vocal, and it's a pretty solid voice. The work itself is dramatic, with the piano doing a lot to put this quality across. Track 5, the second song, Vos beaux yeux me font voir. Your beautiful eyes make me see, see me, okay. This one's gentler, and with a piano intro that has vertiginous rising qualities to it. It reaches dramatic heights and comes across as rather dark in places. The piano features a lot of anxiety-producing tremolos, expressing the uncomfortable feeling the subject's beautiful eyes produce in the singer. Track 6, the third song, Fouillet Amant, Fouillet L'Amour, which is kind of, to me, a funny title. It means flee, lovers, flee from love. <laughs> And if you listen to the text, you'll know why. This is a heavy-toned piece, both in piano and vocal, with some softer modal moments. Here the singer encourages listeners to flee from love in order to avoid her fate. Let's hear the opening of this song. i got to give you a sample of these at some point, so here we go. That's a pretty heevy sounding uh, accompaniment for given the, uh, it sounds pretty ominous. Love is an ominous thing here. Anyway, track seven, the fourth song, Kila Du, 
Le Festin de ces Fleurs. It's sweet, the festival of these flowers. This has lovely trilling high notes from the piano to serve as the introduction with lower thematic lines. Garnier comes in, the vocalist, really with the same tone and approach we've heard in the previous three songs. She's a fine singer with an intriguing vocal tone. I would have liked to hear more manipulation of that tone to expressive purposes. The piano, on the other hand, goes out of its way to produce drama with its sudden fortissimi and equally sudden pulling back into more mezzo forte passages. Track 8, the fifth song, Ils sont rompus, Céline. They are broken, these connections. This has more dramatic fortes on the low end of the piano. I feel there's not enough variety in these six songs, or maybe it's the performances. It's hard to say. I'd have liked more subtlety. Anyway, this song comes across as much like number three, the one I sampled, Fouillez Amant, with its heavy tone broken up by quieter passages. We get the impression of Michelangelo's verse thundering across the entire set of songs. Celia Oneto Ben Said on the piano was far more effective in the quartet than she is here, I think. Track 9, the sixth song, C'est ici que mon unique bien. This is a, has a quiet opening on the piano. It was here that my only love, that I met her. And it's talking about the place where he met his, um, his lover. A quiet opening in the piano here. The piece has a sacred churchy feel. It's a sad lyric, the singer lamenting, that the eyes of the beloved gave hope and her hand formed chains in this place. This song is in contrast to the rest of the set, maintaining its holy still feeling throughout. The performances are fine, but these songs would have come across better with more subtlety to them. For me, the jury's still out on the quality of these songs. Anyway, tracks 10 through 13 are all solo piano works. They're extracts from a long work called En Italie, composed in 1926, and it's sort of an echo, the notes say, of Liszt's years of pilgrimage but lighter and actually a lot shorter, too. They don't really sound that big. The pianist, of course, is Celia Oneto Ben Said. Track 10 is the third movement of that suite, Au Théâtre de Marionnette, at the Marionette Theater. And the piano here is lighter than it is in the entire song cycle we just heard. And I wonder why that is. I think there could have been lighter passages in that. Ben Said gets a light tone in the upper end of the piano and follows the Paul Mechanique instruction Excellently, the mechanical rhythm is there, but not completely, and it disappears as the excitement of drama of the Marionette Theater is heard at a minute and 44 seconds. I'd like to sample the beginning of this work. mechanical rhythm eventually disappears as the excitement of the drama of the marionette theater is heard at a minute and 44 seconds. The music conveys the uh, repetitiveness of the puppet theater's violence as well. It sounds like a Punch and Judy show with a lot of people beating over each other over the head with sticks. Anyway, after the middle, we get to the opening music box theme again, and it's a pretty melody, very inviting. Track 11, Serenade de Pulcinella, which is a serenade for Pulcinella, a character from the... Um, Italian puppet theater. This has rapid figuration on the piano, well taken by Ben Said. The rapid figuration continues throughout the work. Track 12 is movement 7 from the work Le Dimanche dans une Osteria. 
Sunday in an osteria or like a wine bar. Heavy and with some discordant sounds in there. At 36 seconds, a slower, heavier ostinato is heard in the bass, and the mid-range plays a heavier, lumbering melody, perhaps drunken, being that we're in an osteria here. There's a quieter, haunting section after 2 minutes and 45 seconds, and the piece ends with a subtle line that sort of evaporates. Track 13 is the fourth movement. We're going back here. Le Compagnon de Saint-Francois. So St. Francis's Companions. This starts with chords like bells chiming, giving an appropriately churchy sound. Let's sample that. pedal point bass too. At a minute and four seconds, an arpeggiated bass figure accompanies what could pass for birdsong in the higher end of the piano. It's melodic and song-like. The chords come back, and I think the performance could have used more douceur, or sweetness, but it's appealing and puts the quality of the work across well. So on this recording, the quartet is immediately appealing, and it features a lot of the elements that make early 20th century French music so appealing. That light pastel touch, the modal harmony. The work is a real surprise, one that should be taken up by more piano quartet ensembles. The rest of the works on this album, though, really don't live up to the appeal of the quartet. The songs come across without much variety, and I think that's due to the performances. They're fine, as I mentioned, but without much of the nuance that's much needed in French music of this period. The piano works are fine, but are very light. Performances here are full of rhythmic life, and I'd certainly like to hear more from this composer. Since these were all works written when Lelou was in her 20s, I feel like we haven't heard her best music yet. But the piano quartet is a treasure worth hearing, and I would at least encourage you to hear that work in its entirety. Yeah, this recording was all about the quartet for me. I thought it was a really intriguing mix of romantic and impressionistic ideas stitched together in really interesting ways. There's constant changes in it. I really loved this group's string tone, and the blend is really nice. I want to hear more music written for either trio or quartet by her if it exists. The songs really didn't do it for me, and the piano works I found moderately interesting. I did like the fourth movement, best. It's got a kind of mysterious nature to it with those ringing bell-like chords. Right. And I was wondering where it was going and what was going to happen. And yeah, so that kind of held my interest. But the quartet, that's a real gem. And you should definitely hear this. But so too. I wouldn't mind hearing the entire suite on Italy at the yeah. ending though. It'd it could be, be interesting to hear the whole sort yeah. of arc of that work and see you know what kind of places it goes to. Okay, our final album of the uh, classical music is by a contemporary Finnish composer, Uti Tarkiainen, I think. <laughs> they usually put the accent on the first syllable, but I don't know how to do it here. Tarkiainen. Anyway, this is her album, Midnight Sun Variations. Tarkiainen was born in 1985, and when I see that date, I think, oh, wow, she's so young. But she's 39. It's just... I. The last 20 years, to me, like just somehow didn't happen. I don't know. <laughs> I still feel like it's, uh, you know, 2004 or something. I don't know. 
Yeah, but you know, these days, as we often say, it's hard to get your music noticed as a contemporary composer to get people to play it. So yeah, it's still relatively young, I think, to uh, get major works like this, you know, recorded and out there at that age. That is true, but I want to say this is on the Ondine label, and they do a lot for Finnish music. They really seem to have a really great support system in Finland. We get to hear a lot of uh, contemporary Finnish composers on record, and that's what makes me think that there's a lot of really good music coming from there. Right. Anyway, this is uh, by the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Nicholas Collin, and it was released on February 2nd, (laughs) like everything (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Tarki Ainen has two albums out now. This is the second one on the Ondine label. And I liked the booklet description where it says she was born in Rovaniemi in Finland, quote, within shouting distance of the Arctic Circle. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is funny. You can go out of your house and shout, hey, and somebody in the Arctic Circle would hear you, you know. <laughs> Just had that funny image. Anyway, Tarki Ainen has said that music can act like a natural force tapping into the primeval, mythical, and mental connection that humans have with nature. And these connections are particularly close in the far north. In the booklet, Tarkiainen comments at length on all of the works, and her comments are worth contemplating. They're long, so I'm not going to read them all to you. I'm actually going to say a lot about the first work that we hear, but not all of them. You'll have to download the booklet for all the rest. Now, previously we heard that Lelou had mentioned that there's really not much difference between men and women composers. But um, if we look at the themes of Tarkiainen's music, men can't possibly write this music. This is really, she really (laughs) did find a women's theme. And that women's theme is childbirth, (laughs) what it does to your body, the connection between the mother and the child, all of these things. Can't help you there, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, I can't. I don't know. I'm just listening and, uh, you know, trying to pick something up from this composer here. All these works deal in some way with the birth of a child. You want to keep that in mind, as I'm not going to highlight that element for every piece, okay? Tarkiainen does go into that in the booklet. The first work is called Midnight Sun Variations. And you might be wondering, oh, the midnight sun. So it's daytime all the time in northern Finland in the summer, because they're so close to the North Pole. What does that have to do with childbirth? Well, I'll give you a sample here of the booklet note. The music depicts light and its absence, demonstrating Tarkiainen's exacting approach to tonal color. The natural environment of the north is considered bleak and barren, but closer inspection reveals a vast richness and range of colors. This isn't a set of variations in the sense that it has an identifiable theme that is then varied. Instead, it is a process where nature renews itself both as an entire ecosystem and as a personal and physical manifestation of the birth of a new human life. Okay, got that? Here we go. Tarkiainen's comment on this work is pretty compelling. She says, This work for orchestra is a set of variations on the light where the sun never sets in the Arctic summer night. The northern sky above the Arctic Circle in summer reflects a rich spectrum of infinitely nuanced hues that as autumn draws near become veiled in shadow until darkness slowly descends and the sun ceases to rise above the horizon. My son was born on the night when the summer's last warm day gave way to a dawn shrouded in autumnal mist. Midnight Sun Variations is also about giving birth to new life when the woman and the child within her part, restoring her former self as the light fades into winter. So you see, all of these are going to have those two themes. Anyway, let's just get into her sound world. I'm going to sample the beginning of this piece, and then I'll talk about it after you hear it. 
That seems a good place to fade. <laughs> it's enchanting, this opening, with glittery percussion and winds playing descending lines. We even hear depths in the well-captured bass. The orchestration shimmers like you would expect the Midnight Sun to do, with a wavering feeling. There are lots of woodwinds, and I feel like Sibelius established woodwinds as the key to capturing the nature of the Finnish woods. Tone color or timbre is a big part of the expression of this piece, but certain motifs keep returning, making the brief thematic but not melodic musical lines part of the structure. Woodwinds have a lot of weight to carry in this piece, and it must be a thrill for the woodwind section of the orchestra to play this. By the five-minute mark, we're in a noticeably new section, which we've eluded or melted into, which features short pulsing tones and dipping glissandos. She seems to like that very brief glissando from one note to the next sounding like crying birds. Strings and brass are included here with the winds, but Tarkiainen has a light touch, painting dark tones with a mostly light touch. There's a powerful crescendo at 6 minutes and 30 seconds into some dramatic gestures. The tactileness of the percussion and lower strings here on the recording is fantastic, registering strongly in the room. The piece then moves back to quieter but dramatic tones, giving us a mysterious view of Finland's far north. Track two is another piece, Songs of the Ice, written in 2019. Tarkiainen says this is a sibling work to Midnight Sun Variations. And here, too, the music stems from natural phenomena in the Arctic region and reminds us that humans are only a part of the cycle of nature and belong to nature. Ice can be permanent, hard polar ice, but the cycle of seasons and climate change can also render it fragile and transitory. Let's hear the opening of Songs of the Ice. Now, if you are blessed with a speakers with an excellent bass response, as both Russ and I are, <laughs> that beginning will just thrill you because that yes. bass drum is just so powerfully caught on the recording. And for structural purposes, you want to notice that each time you hear it, you're going to hear a line from the orchestra rising up, and it'll rise even higher each yeah. time you hear it. So there's a activity going on there, and it, seems, it sounds like nature, really, something growing. We heard that thundering bass drum and the upward moving gestures. Each time we hear the bass drum, the orchestra sprints upward to a higher point. Tarkiainen is inventive with the orchestral sounds and especially uses the quieter metal percussion to create glimmering sonorities. Motivic material is heard in the woodwinds after this opening. Over time, these motifs become rising figures by the fifth minute and have a northern glimmer to their sound. I was really drawn by the very high woodwinds at 7 minutes and 20 seconds. A pause follows, then a gentler light playing on ice texture in the strings, accompanied by gentle piano arpeggios. All of this leads very gradually to a big climax via upward moving lines to a crescendo. The last upward moving line ends in high strings and woodwinds again, enchanting icy sounds. 
This time they're descending like water running on melting ice. And I'm going to sample that as well because I thought this was a pretty cool piece. Let's hear this is about the 10 minute and 30 second mark. Compelling sounds throughout, easily identifiable motifs. Okay, tracks three through five is a, <laughs> a multi-movement work called Milky Ways, Concerto for Cor Anglais and Orchestra, composed in 2022. The uh, Cor soloist is Nicholas Daniel. Now this work takes its title both, and this is the case in all of these works sort of, from the galaxy, so we have the Milky Way, and from breastfeeding an infant. <laughs> <laughs> A, uh, a subject that uh, male composers have never tackled, I just want to mention. Anyway, Tarkiainen begins her remarks by saying, We all begin life on milky ways. Milky as the bronze-sheathed infant gaze halts and entices the fountainhead of God to flow. Whoa, wow. I had to pause <laughs> after I read that. It's a pretty big mythical figure there. She also remarks, among other things, that we are transported throughout the concerto by the hypnotic sound of the Coranglaise that soars from Mother Earth to the celestial Milky Way to the sweet, solid, loving cradle of life. Track three is the first movement called the Infant Gaze. It has a slow tempo with tiny bursts of energy, starts with a pulsing bassoon, I think. Actually, I think that's the Coranglaise at the beginning. I'm not really sure. This could be the solo Coranglaise. Well, let's listen to it and find out. Here we go. It's the Cor Anglais. And the reason I thought it was a bassoon when I first heard it was because it reminded me of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And that has the oh, right, very yeah. famous opening bassoon part. So I think I just kind of put the two together there. Anyway, that is the Cor Anglais. The opening put me in mind of the Rite of Spring and its primitive feel. And we're getting a bit of that feel here. I love the timbre Tarkiainen gets from the woodwinds. They're not all traditional tones. By the second minute, the Cor Anglais is melodically in the picture. He takes center stage with his rising figures in the third minute, and the entire movement unwinds slowly with distant rumbling explosions from the orchestra, providing background for the Cor Anglais. The orchestra quietens as the Cor Anglais winds down his solo playing. There's nice music box percussion at the end. Track four, the second movement, is called Interplays. The movement is about the evolution of the relationship of child and mother, in a playful scherzo. 
The twists and turns of the music make it clear that the child has a will of its own, according to Tarkiainen in her notes. The cor anglais starts this out with a slow tremolo. Some bending notes on the timpani are heard. It's a cool effect. The cor anglais gets some virtuosic lines in this movement. Again, the wavering line of the woodwinds in the orchestra puts me in mind of part two of the Rite of Spring, though this piece has none of its aggression. Tarkiainen characterized this movement as playful, but it's a pretty cosmic level playfulness. The orchestra writing has some real heft to it. Let's hear the uh, opening of this movement. I wonder if listeners can figure out what I mean by, like, it reminds me of the Rite of Spring. I wonder if it reminds them as well. Anyway, at 3 minutes and 12 seconds, in fact, there are some urgent clashes of harmony. And at 3 minutes and 48 seconds, the cor anglais gets a bit of a cadenza, accompanied by woody percussion. There's an urgent outburst by the orchestra, which plays a downward moving line to end the movement. And the third movement, at the fountainhead of God, by which she means the baby at the mother's breast... It's a, that's quite an image. <laughs> this movement breathes slowly in peaceful, harmonious, slow tempos. While writing the piece, Tarkiainen learned that Nicholas Daniel, the Coranglais soloist here, had lost his mother to suicide at a young age. And this led to the ending of the concerto reflecting of the meeting of life and death, the beginning and end of the earthly cycle in a human life. The opening of this has an enchanted, heavenly feel, like we're floating beyond everyday life, which, which I guess would what being at the breast would be like. Anyway, there's a wonderful distant bass rumbling that will show up enticingly. If you have a subwoofer or good bass response to your speakers, um, you're going to love that. The cor anglais comes in with a more sustained line, this time moving slowly. The cor anglais is put through a few extended techniques at times, including a fluttered tongue tone, if that's what it is. Uh, the cor anglais, I don't know how to play the cor anglais, so I don't know if that's a, it's a reed instrument, so I'm not really sure. I guess you could flutter a tongue on that. Anyway, the Coranglaze lines sound pleading as the solo line picks up steam. The bass on this piece is subtle and comes up wonderfully on the recording. The ending of this movement features a bit of a lament, starting with bell-like tones. This is the lament for um, the situation of the soloist and his mother who had right. committed suicide. It's pretty clear when it starts. It starts with bell-like tones from the percussion, and it really does seem to shift into a new feeling space when this happens. The piece ends in a mysterious, natural fade. Track 6, The Ring of Fire and Love, written in 2020. And this has a more exotic setting than the previous works. The common elements here are the inseparability of humans and nature, and the formative experiences that establish us as part of nature. Here again, the link between the geothermal and human contexts is... The birth of a child. <laughs> the reason she says this is the ring of fire has a double meaning. It's kind of where all the volcanoes are in Asia. But it also, the ring of fire apparently is um, when the baby's head crowns. They, they, they call that opening the ring of fire, hmm. according to the notes, if I understood them correctly. Anyway, let's hear the opening of this work.
and things here happen over time and slowly, so it's really hard to give you an idea of how these pieces progress from the samples. It's a compelling opening, though, with a subtle puff of bass underpinning some shrill winds. The lower end rumbles, and we get a lot of cool high-frequency effects from strings and winds. So far, this composition doesn't have much of a middle. The percussion really explodes out of the speakers when they're heard forte and above. This work has a bit more of an urgency to it, with the orchestra responding heavily to the pounding of the percussion, heard intermittently. Slow, brief pulsing patterns emerge in the third minute. There's some distant brass at four minutes that come forward and is reminiscent of Sibelius. There are a lot of thematic gestures, but they don't necessarily connect into anything melodic. They just sort of make their statement and make way for the next theme, and then come back later. There is structure to these works, which these motifs provide by the way they're used. The next section is a bit more amorphous, featuring waves of crescendos and decrescendos. It goes to the end like this, ending quietly with a gently plucked harp. Again, a music box-like ending. So first of all, I want to say this is a fantastic recording. Uh, so shout-outs go to the engineers, Antti Pohola, uh, Yari Rantakaulio, and Enno Mermetz. <laughs> I hope I said those Finnish names correctly. The last also did the final mix and the mastering. Recording producer was Laura Heikinheimo. What we have here compositionally is music that uses a lot of enchanting and powerfully rumbling orchestral sounds to communicate its mood combined with instrumental motifs that come in and out of the compositions to give it a followable structure. As a result, the works hold together well, and I found them compelling to listen to, not least because of the excellence of the sound Nicholas Colon gets out of the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra and the full dimensionality of the recording. It's music with mythological themes of the female and winds up being universal due to the power with which Tarkiainen depicts the mythological sense in her compositions. Tarkiainen couldn't ask for more sympathetic performances, and that's been the case throughout the classical recordings of this week, well, at least on the first album. All composers are being served extremely well with performances that may make this music catch on. This one's very atmospheric, creating mm. a sense of space and scenery through the tones. It's mostly sparse with layers of different tones added to achieve new effects. Even these really high woodwind tones that create an iciness are interestingly contrasted by those deep bass rumbles. So you have this full spectrum of sound there. I enjoyed all of the double reed sounds in the Songs of the Ice a lot. There's some bassoon mm -hmm. there as well. And then the intervals and scales that she uses in the English horn lines in Milky Ways constantly caught my attention, as well as Daniel's beautiful tone on the instrument. It's one of those recordings where you kind of enter into this landscape of sound and you don't know what's going to happen, so you just go along for the mm. tour. In this case, not visual, but surrounding you with all these interesting tone colors. It's got some serious power to it, too. It does, yeah. This music, yeah, really great. Okay, so, and that's it for classical this week. So, how about jazz, Russ? Are there any uh, childbirths happening there? Or? There are no childbirths <laughs> on this side. Matter of fact, we've just got a bunch of sacks, and it's all male sacks, too, so. Okay. Good contrast to the female composers. Yeah. We've got some really cool recordings here, starting out with Lucas Gabrick's Moving On on Alessa Records. This was released on February 9th. Dr. Lucas Gabrick, that is, is an Austrian saxophonist who has an active international career. 
In 2013, he was a semi-finalist in the Thelonious Monk competition in Washington, D.C. He received a postgraduate artist diploma from the Juilliard School in New York, where he was also a faculty member at the preparatory division between 2014 and 2021. He holds a Ph.D. in musicology from the City University of New York. He's played on more than 10 recordings. He's here on tenor sax and compositions on this recording. We've got John Arman on guitar, Matthias Barta on piano, who we've heard before back in episode 111, Mercurial Moods, with his trio recording from this moment on. We had some nice exchanges by email back then, too. Danny Zeman on bass and Clemens Marktel on drums. Recording engineer Dusan Novakov and mixing and mastering engineer Danny Zeman as well. I'm going to start out with the title track, Moving On. And the title track, it says in the notes, reflect the optimism, energy, and momentum against which it is necessary to constantly create new things. There's a lot of good energy here right from the start. The tune structure is interesting. There's kind of a boppy eight measure intro. Check out how the downbeat feel gets shifted around and then comes back. Then an AABA melody with more of a Latin groove and a contrasting syncopated B section. Then we hear the intro section again into a solo from Gabrick. The melody lines are doubled up here as well in a lot of other tunes on the recording in unison with the sax and guitar. So let's check it out and see what this sounds like. As you hear there, Garbrick has a big muscular tone as well as well-connected phrasing, getting some high cries in as well, and things break into a swing over walking bass for a change-up midway through his solo. So let's jump back in there and hear some of that later on. I like his clear articulation and the mix of different rhythmic ideas in his lines. 
Bata has a melodic piano solo too, with a bounce in his lines as things shift back to a kind of Latin-y groove. They come back in on the melody from the A section and finish with the intro. Track two, Got to Be. The notes say jazz enthusiasts can recognize bonds to the styles of Michael Brecker, Joshua Redman, and Eddie Harris. I definitely noticed the Brecker influence right away here. It's a cool altered chord 12-bar blues melody, worked again together by sax and guitar, cool stop-time rhythm section underneath, twice around as customary, and then Gabrick is flying free, soloing over just the drums. Let's hear some of this get going. some fun harmonic excursions in there but always coming back to the blues and he plays on and on in this solo piano and bass are back in for a guitar solo from Armand so let's check out some of his playing in this tune there getting started on a drum solo on this tune as well and then they'll wrap it up with a couple more times around the melody track three is sai ma the notes say it's a tribute to gabrick's experience in guangzhou china during the final phase of the covid19 pandemic hmm. well <laughs> just the mind uh, <laughs> wonders what he was even doing there yeah a chordless trio tune here, sax, bass, and drums. Gabrick starts it out with some solo lines of rising interval figures. It gets into time for the minor melody, two times around a 32-measure form with a lot of creative variations on the lines from Gabrick. Then it breaks into a free section with sax ideas like the intro idea and some ringing bass that works into a fast walk as things get swinging for some furious soloing from Gabrick. Markto gets some drum solo time, and Gabrick returns with a new playful minor modal melody line to end it up. Track 4, 929, a date reference created in response to the tragic murder of George Floyd, the yeah. notes say. 
In light of the subject, we've got some dense and dark piano chords on a 16-measure intro. The main tune is minor and modally worked together by guitar and sax in unison again. It's a 32-measure AABA. The B section brightens a bit with skittering cymbals, and there's a final 6-measure tag section into Gabrick's solo. The solos stick to the AABA form. Let's hear this one get going. into Gabrick's solo there, and on this tune, Bartha solos after him, so let's hear some of his piano work on this tune. Some interesting scales and rhythms in his ideas there. And Armin has a guitar solo with some neat spacey licks and gypsy scales in there as well before they get back to the angsty melody. Track 5 is called Life on Hold. The description says it gently reminds you to seize the present life and embrace the fullness of life without procrastination. It's a slow and bluesy tune. There's a little piano intro phrase into the melody, and you'll notice the snappy brush hits from Markto on the drums. The song's in an AABA 32 measure form. Guitar and sax alternate the first sections and then join together for the second half. Gabrick's solo has some enticing descending lines and double time phrases, all with a full tone, and Barta has a relaxed piano solo, and Zeman has a really ringing bluesy bass solo on this one. So let's hear some bass on this tune.
Oh, that's like a perfect one-minute solo. Thanks for mm. that. It makes a really good sample. They work through the melody once more together after that from the B section to finish it up. Track six, Love Walked In, and this is explained as the application of Coltrane cycles to the timeless piece. Well, anyone who knows Giant Steps will tune their ear into the shifting tonic centers in this tune. It starts with a nine-measure intro. Keep that phrase in your ear because you'll hear it again. Armin takes the first 16-measure melody section and then Gabrick, and it ends with that intro phrase with the seemingly extra measure in it. And we should hear what Gabrick plays over this kind of chord sequence. So let's join in after he gets started and listen for the rhythm section to kick it up to a more driving swing. solos next with snappy lines through the changes and Barta has an animated swinging piano solo once more around the melody with some final phrase vamping for Marktel to work it up on the drums to finish it. Track 7 is Dedication. This sounds like a variation on confirmation changes on this beboppy tune. What's cool about it is that sax, guitar, and bass all take the AABA melody together in unison over Marktel's brushes and Barta's piano is mute. Zeman is up for a boisterous boppy and bluesy bass solo first, so let's hear this tune get going. Armin is up next on guitar, where Bartha joins in for backing on the piano. Gabrick swings hard with a husky tone on his solo with a mix of bebop and bluesy phrases, and Bartha gets a go too. I like how Zeman mixes up the bass from walking to pulsing repeated notes to keep things interesting as it goes along, and they get back to the pianoless unison melody to end it. Track 8, Riff for Griff. Maybe that's Johnny Griffin. This is going to turn into a 60s feel boogaloo blues, but you might have a problem counting out the melody meter. But after you listen to the beat under the solo sections, just use that 
meter and count to figure out that it's actually twice around a 12 bar blues. So let's hear the melody get going. change up into Gabrick's solo there. As we say, you can never have too much boogaloo. <laughs> it's very cool and infectious. We, we believe that on this podcast anyway. <laughs> well, there's fun line interchanges from Bartha and Armin that follow before they take it around the blues head a couple more times. And the recording ends up with the only standard and non-Gabrick composition, My One and Only Love, a 1953 popular song with music written by Guy Wood and the lyrics were by Robert Mellon. And they're going to end it up with a ballad. Armin sits this one out. There's a lovely solo rubato opening from Barta, and Gabrick gets to show off his huge warm tone on the famous melody. So let's hear it get started. After the melody continues on into an improvised solo that has some tasty double-time lines, Bartha gets a piano solo, and Zeman has a wonderfully melodic bass solo here too, getting way up into the high register before Gabrick returns on the bridge into the final section of the melody, and a super cool cadenza to end it. And it's so good, it just wouldn't be right to not sample the ending of this song. So let's do that. Thank you. 
I love that last breathy <laughs> burst of air coming through. Well, he may be a doctor of sax, but there's no danger of the music being purely academic on Gabrick's recording. We get tastes of tradition from Parker and Coltrane ideas up to more modern harmonies and a variety of rhythmic feels in his original compositions. Everything sounds great with his huge tone and Gabrick's solos all show a lot of passion. Fine solos all around from Armand, Bartha, and Zeman. Markto is a tasty drummer too. I especially liked his brushwork on the recording. Don't move on until you've given this one a few listens. Ah. Okay, well, I also want to express my appreciation for the cool retro album cover. We have to mention yeah, these when they come neat. up. This is a really good one. It's an accurate visual representation of the music on the album, I thought. Hmm. The, the album itself is old school, I thought, with especially the heavily reverbed electric guitar giving me that um, 50s and 60s atmosphere, you know. Yeah. The boogaloo, that kind of thing. That was that era. Gabrick has a solid technique and often will go off on technical solos sensitive to the harmony, changing his feel within certain chords or progressions. I thought that was really hmm. interesting. In Life on Hold, he gets that late night smoky tone too. The drummer's highly responsible for the energy, I thought, uh, playing propulsively and intricately in his solos. And every time the bass solos, he really gets a lot in. He's, he's naughty, but he's got a lot to say. And he wants to get it all out. And he does. And he does it in a musical way. It's really great. Piano was against the grain, often uh, outlining alternative possibilities for the rhythm. And I liked that, too. So there's always something to listen to here. Yeah, I thought the spotlight was really on the solos on this album. Yeah. Really, uh, everybody got like a ample time in the spotlight. And they all had really interesting ideas. And I thought it was enjoyable. Gave off positive vibes. Well recorded. Nothing to complain about. All right, moving on and upward to the alto saxophone, our next recording from the great Jim Snedero. For all we know, on Savant Records, it came out February 16th, Snedero grew up in Camp Springs, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., started playing jazz as a teenager, studying with Phil Woods and David Liebman, then attending University of North Texas, got to New York in 1981 at the age of 23, joined brother Jack McDuff's band, played with the Mingus Big Band, Eddie Palmieri, Toshiko Akiyoshi, Frank West, Sting and Frank Sinatra, and mm. Brian Lynch we've heard him with as well. He's a friend of Mike Ladon's, and Mike talked about him a lot in our interview we did with him. If you haven't heard that, go back. It was a really good interview back when we got started. And he's on the faculty at the New School and was a visiting professor at both Indiana University and Princeton University. Now what we've got here is a chordless sax trio recording, which is really nothing new. Sonny Rollins started it out with Way Out West back in 1957, and in addition to the great playing on that recording, that recording quality is stunning to this day. If you've never heard that, listen to that recording. It's amazing. And we talked to uh, Rudresh Mahantapa in an interview as well about his chordless trio recording. Uh, check that interview out if you haven't heard that. But I've noticed a kind of recent surge in these chordless groups. Maybe other people wouldn't see that, but since I check the releases every day, I have like right. a 30-page list of three-month releases. I've got five other cordless sax recordings on that list that have just come out in the past couple months. I could have done a whole episode of them easily, but I knew Snideros would be top-notch, so I picked this one. We should mention cordless means like without a, an instrument that plays chords, like a exactly. piano or a guitar. It doesn't have anything to do with a telephone cord or something. <laughs> That's <laughs> not kind the of, uh, yeah. Bluetooth uh, recording. Right, no. not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so cordless, what we've got is Jim Snedero on the alto saxophone. Peter Washington, 
on bass and Joe Farnsworth on drums. So no piano, no guitar. And what that is going to do is going to give you a lot more space hmm. and also a bit more freedom harmonically because you're going to only have the bass note and one melody note. And so the possibilities of going in different directions are increased. I found an interview with Snedero and the London Jazz News that had a few interesting things in it. And I liked what he said about his playing at this stage. I'll quote, It's really just a matter of developing my taste. I'm not trying to make it interesting to other people. I'm trying to make it interesting to me, and hopefully that's interesting to others. End of I quote. think that's the right way to do it, really. I think know, that's the right way to, yeah. to do music and most other things in life. You know, yeah. If you try to please people, you're never going to quite succeed. But if you make sure that you're doing what you think is right and enjoying it, it's the best way to get most other people to participate in that as well. Right. In fact, um, Rick Rubin had a book out just recently, and one of the, he said an amazing thing in there. He said that uh, when you try to please people, how can you do that? Because pe he says people don't know what they want. No, they don't. <laughs> they only know what went before. Right. So they recognize that when it comes again. And sometimes if you do it well, they'll go for that. But if you do something completely original, you know, they're, they're going to have to kind of acclimate to that first before it really right. takes off. But that's where you get those like uh, really magical you know, records, you know, yeah. the ones that are. Now here we've got mostly standards. So from the same interview about playing standards, Snedero says, quote, the challenge for me is to create that balance between newness and tradition and try to put a new stamp on it. If you do put your own stamp on it, then no one else can do that. And it's going to sound good 100 years from now. Hmm. So think about that as we go through these standards done in, I think, a unique way and also with a lot of continuity and sensitivity to what's come before. And we're going to start right out with the title track, For All We Know, from 1934, by J. Fred Coots, sung by Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, and played by countless jazz musicians. This is a 32-measure song in two halves, with the same first section and different ending halves. At this tempo, we'll just make it almost halfway through the melody with a sample, but you'll get an idea for the soundscape you're going to have on this recording. So let's hear it get going. It's a sparse atmosphere, allowing Snedero's great tone to shine through. He treats the melody with reverence, but will take advantage of the harmonic freedom more and more as it goes on. Washington brings in a bit more of a bounce as Snedero moves into improvised lines, 
And we're used to hearing Farnsworth as one of the most swinging drummers around. So it's interesting to hear him on this recording, light, but with lots of interesting textures. The rhythm evolves into more of a swing in the cymbals over walking bass, and Snedero ties it back into the melody and then gets left on his own for a solo cadenza with some fluttery harmonic explorations. I quite enjoyed that, so let's check out the ending of this tune as well. Track two is Naima, John Coltrane. All jazz fans know this one. He recorded it several times, most notably from 1959's Giant Steps. Washington starts it out on solo bass here, working up to a cool groove of intervals and double stops, setting up a kind of slow Latin beat. That's interesting because Coltrane's original is rather stark and plaintive in expression. Snedero treats the melody in a similar fashion, but the contrast with the underlying rhythm is unique. Let's check it out from where Washington and Farnsworth get the groove going into the melody. Snedero's tone here is airy and light, with short, searching phrases in his solo before returning to the melody and the notable final rising lines of the tune. Track three, Love for Sale. Cole Porter, of course, from the 1930 musical The New Yorkers. This is the only kind of up-tempo tune on the recording. I love this start with just bass and sax, Washington switching up the groove underneath all by himself. Let's check this out.
Farnsworth is in minimalist mode here, but he kicks it up a bit more when Washington gets chugging along. Let's hear some of Snedero's solo when it's really swinging later on in the tune. Farnsworth gets a solo too, really mixing up the rhythms and figures between the snare and toms before they get back to the melody. They take it out over a cool ostinato bass vamp. Track 4, Blackberry Winter, a song by Lunas McGlowan and Alec Wilder. This was recorded first by vocalist Teddy King in 1976, and then Keith Jarrett made a well-known recording of it in 1977. This is a really nice melody in a 32-measure AABA form. They give it a good rhythmic motion with Farnsworth minimal on mostly hi-hat. Peter Washington gets the feature here with his extended bass solo, so let's hear a little bit of his work on this tune. goes on and on from there, and Snedero comes back with fluttery improvisations around the melody and sticking closer on the bridge and final section to a slowed ending. Very nice. Track 5, Parker's Mood, recorded by Charlie Parker in 1948. Like Naima, this is an interesting choice to take such an iconic piece by one of the most important jazz saxophonists. You know, kind of wonder, you know, how you can do something different with it without being sort of uh, disrespectful to it. But he does a good job with this. Uh, so Parker's Mood, it's a B-flat blues. It's got this iconic opening sort of lick to it. What's interesting is it actually starts in G minor, and then it goes to C minor, and it has these substitute chords that get it into the main key. And on the original recording, the other musicians were John Lewis on piano, Curly Russell on bass and Max Roach on drums. I'm always used to hearing that piano, so it was interesting to hear this because Nadero comes right in on the opening riff, much in the fashion of the original, and he starts out playing much like Charlie Parker would. There's several takes of the original version, and after the opening sort of riff, they're all very different the way the solo starts. Uh, but then Snedero kind of moves and expresses things in his own fashion as he goes along. So let's hear this one get started. Mm 
cordless thing works really well there yeah it does yeah. yeah i like the slow exploration he has in his lines around two minutes into the tune and that's kind of balanced out with bluesier ideas and then some really blistering double time lines before we get back to the opening riff and the bass and drums wrap it up track six willow weep for me tune by Anne ronnell goes back to 1932 one of my favorite standards i'm sure my favorite vocal version is by Lou Rawls with the Les McCann Trio from right. 1962. That's his Blue Note debut. And if you've never heard that, you got to check out that golden voice with a jazz trio setting. And on sax, I and probably most others think of Phil Woods immediately. It's on his 1974 recording, Musique du Bois, with the melody juxtaposed over an all-blues bass ostinato and piano chords. Here it's more laid back, but still with a good groove and neat bass from Washington. So let's hear this get going. Interesting drum clicks going on there from Farnsworth. Very interesting drum beat. I particularly like Snedero's solo on this tune, where he can sense more freedom in his lines in this chordless format. Let's just hear a little bit of that later on. Thank you. 
Washington has a bass solo on this one as well, with interesting melodic explorations and a great loping feel. Track 7, My Funny Valentine, of course Rogers and Hart, from the 1937 musical Babes in Arms. Everyone knows this melody. There's close to 1,500 recorded versions of it. Farnsworth sneaks in softly later in the melody, but it starts out with just sax and bass, and Snedero plays it pretty straight, and my ear was drawn right away to Washington's cool bass lines. So let's hear it get going. Keep your ears on the bass. Snedero's improvised solo is really fine on this one too, and they do work it up to more of a rhythmic push. Track 8 and the final track is You Go To My Head, also by J. Fred Coots, 1938. There are a lot of versions of this tune, vocalists from Billie Holiday to Bob Dylan (laughs) on his standards album Triplicate in 2017. On sax, I think of Paul Desmond with Dave Brubeck, and I think he recorded it in 1957. And of course, uh, Phil Woods also recorded it with strings in 2002 on The Thrill Is Gone. That's a great album where the string arrangements really complement rather than distract you from the great jazz. Here they give it a bouncy swing. I like how Snedero gets his solo started with two-note phrases working into more connected phrases. And Washington gets a nice chugging walk driving it along under the boppy sax lines. And Washington takes a solo too. But let's check out Snedero and Farnsworth trading fours into the tune because uh, we skipped the first and only other drum solo on the recording. So let's hear a little bit of Farnsworth's playing. Soon after those exchanges, it's back to the melody to finish up the recording. You can really get a sense of Jim Snedero's sound and fully developed playing style in this setting, with a lot of space and extra freedom, 
It all gels together well conceptually, but with creative variety in interpretation with the program of standards and originals by the two most iconic jazz saxophonists. Washington has great ideas too, and intriguing interplay with the melodies. Farnsworth is mostly subtle, but always tasty here. Definitely worth your time for a contemplative listen. Hey, you really uh, analyzed this album pretty deeply there. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have anything to add there. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed the uh, the fact that there's no chord-based instrument on this. I thought it was really interesting. Because, you know, as a classical listen, you know, you'll listen to a lot of, like, counterpoint, and it, you know, that this just kind of draws you in. What are they going to do in, in this case? I was kind of impressed at how Snyderow can change his mood so completely at distinct parts of his solos. Like, an example of this is right on the first track, um, For All We Know. It starts out with this kind of sexy sort of line. And the solo goes through a lot of moods until the theme comes back at the end when he repeats it. And it doesn't sound the same. It sounds like forlorn. It's lost its mm. sexiness. I guess it had a it had a rough time <laughs> you know, throughout <laughs> the track or something. I don't, but I thought that was really intriguing. I was kind of kept my ear on that. There are a lot of ideas on the uh, meta level, I felt like, on this right. album. You know, It's pretty introspective, though. Good for late night. I guess when you don't have any chords, you're kind of... <laughs> I don't know. It's just good for that time, I think. It stays relatively quiet with the drums, not providing a groove except when he's like soloing at times. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of, and mostly accents on the snare at times. It's kind of interesting to hear Farnsworth play like this. He's not. Yeah, I thought so too. Really like that. There's a lot of subtlety to listen to, especially in Snyderos playing. And yet the album comes across as uh, pretty calming. I rather liked it. You know, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot to really zone in on too if you want to. So it's a good album for that. If you're a jazz fan and you know all of these jazz standards anyway, when I hear these, I mean, I'm hearing the chord changes in my head. Right. So I'm filling in the blanks. And then that little extra freedom, you know, the bass goes off in a little different direction or Stendero takes a little excursion out. It really draws me to that because I'm hearing what I normally hear in my head. And then I can really focus in this kind of new space on what's actually happening. And you can hear things a lot more clearly when you don't have all these extra, you know, chord notes in there too. So yeah, right. it's a different way to experience tunes when you have fewer instruments. I wonder about that because if you know the, uh, if you know the tune, if you know the chords, and mm -hmm. you can you fill out the chords in your head. But if you don't know it, there are a lot of possibilities that, that chord could be if you don't know like, what, <laughs> what it actually is. So it kind of makes it kind of interesting if you can just kind of put that out of your head for a moment and just kind of right. listen to. You know, I, I heard it as a lot of possibility, really. It's really I think interesting. So. Yeah. All right, and our final recording, staying on the alto sax, Peter DiCarlo, his recording The Other Side on Shifting Paradigm Records, also came out February 16th. DiCarlo went to Rutgers University for undergraduate and graduate studies, studying with saxophonist Ralph Bowen. Immediately after completing his graduate studies, he began a career as an educator, several different schools. He's published several scholarly articles on woodwind pedagogy and jazz education, featured in Tempo magazine. He earned a second master's degree in education from Columbia University's Graduate School of Education, Teachers College, and he's performed at the Blue Note, Carnegie Hall, Smalls Jazz Club, among other venues. His first album as a leader was 2021's Onward, and he left New York City three years ago to go to that other great jazz mecca, Mike Wait, wait, the other jazz mecca? Yeah. Or is that it? Istanbul. Oh. 
Was I supposed to know that? <laughs> no, I'm surprising <laughs> you. It's an interesting decision, but he's got some hot Turkish players on this recording. So we've got Peter DiCarlo on alto sax. Now, this is a chance to butcher another language. Last week, I had, what, Georgian? And so this week, I've got oh. Turkish. So I'll oh, do boy. my best. Uraz Kivanej okay. on piano. I think that it's sound, spelled that with an convincing. R, but the, the <laughs> end sound is like a S-H or G from my okay. research. Ozan Musluoglu on bass. There's a G in there, but I think it's silent. And Ferit Odman on drums. All tracks here, except for one, composed by DiCarlo himself. I'll talk about the other one when we get to it. We've got engineering Sinan Sakizli, Steve Jankowski on mixing, Nate Wood mastering. All right, the recording starts out with the title track, The Other Side, and I was hooked right away when I heard this. It starts with a reaching solo sax line into a super syncopated rhythm section eight measure intro. Then we're off on a 12-bar blues into some incendiary searing toned sax playing. I'm going to let this sample run a little bit long because it's just so cool. And uh, I want you to hear what this tune is all about. stop it but yeah this solo just builds and builds with energy and harmonic tension that infects the whole band kivanish is next for a piano solo working it up from bouncy figures to a great climax and we must hear some of that too because it's another highlight on the recording Woo, 
Yeah, so that's where all the hot jazz is in <laughs> Turkey now. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Man. Back to the intro section from there for some vamping and drum buildup from Oddman before some final melody rounds. Uh, don't miss the final high sax cry on the outro as well. Yeah, I want to say, before you go on to the next track, I said in my notes the exact same thing you said where the sax um, on that track, like during his solo, you could actually hear him pick up the entire rhythm section. Like they just sort of respond in a way that they weren't yeah. playing before. It's actually audible at one point. And I I noticed that too. So It's, it's just really some amazing. like lightning bolt comes through there. Yeah. Really great energy. Track two is called Fluffy Cloud. A rocky beat, an attractive minor melody on this one. It's 32 measure AABA form with fun rhythm section pauses and a funky bass line. Let's hear it get going. piano solo from Kivanush here with lots of punchy rhythms and some exciting speedy lines, but let's hear some of DiCarlo's solo on this tune. section for some chord vamping and drum fills before they get back to the melody again with a few final cute phrase repeats. Track three is called Yesterday's Tomorrow, a slow minor tune. After an eight measure rhythm section intro with descending bass lines, the 40 measure melody has alternating eight measure sections of longing and legato sax melody and tasty improvised piano. DiCarlo continues on with the solo, mixing silky and searing tones they get back to the alternating sax and piano sections with a pretty ending of a couple of held chords. Track four, Ever You Need Me, and this is written by Francesca Prihasti. She's a pianist and composer originally from Indonesia and now based in New York City. It's an airy tune with an eight measure intro of lightly rhythmic piano figures over ringing bass. The sax melody has a repeating 16 measure section that becomes more syncopated and ends in a cool little bass and left hand piano kind of modal figure. That might be one of the Turkish touches that are mentioned in the album notes. So let's have a little listen to this tune.
There's a contrasting new section of long sax notes over rhythmic bass ostinatos before DiCarlo has launched off into improvisations with a lot of soaring lines. Let's check out Kivanej's piano solo on this one over some bass by Musluolu that's really digging in. Building from there, a really exciting solo with great interplay. They work it through the melody sections again to a final repeating progression for some more improvisations from DiCarlo. It comes down soft over the bass ostinato from earlier to a slowed down ending. Track five is Doodat, D-O-D-A-T. A minor waltz here with an eight measure rhythm section intro. The sax melody is a 16 measure structure. And then there's a contrasting eight measure section that turns brighter over walking bass. We hear the previous section again, and then DiCarlo is off improvising. He gets intense and brings it down nicely at the ending to hand off the solo baton to Kivanish. Let's check that out a little bit into the tune. piano solo on this one with some fleet runs and two hand synced piano lines together. Back to the melody sections and a final extended vamp for DiCarlo to blow out some final searing lines and a neat slowdown to the end too. Track six is called Little Footsteps. This is a fun minor swinging tune, 32 measure AABA form. Check out the descending sax and piano line at the end of the A sections and the cool bass break on the B. Very neat. Let's check it out.
Wagner's is up first for a piano solo. On this one, it has a nice playful sense and cool rhythmic interaction with bass and drums. DiCarlo makes his solo melodic and bluesy with really great articulation and tone. And Musluolu gets his first solo chance on bass on this tune, so let's hear it. It's got awesome bluesy licks and a fierce attack on the notes. to the melody from there to finish it up. And the final track on the recording is called Last Morning. A four-measure intro sets up the longing minor melody. It's a 32-measure AABA melody with a clicky R&B groove. Listen for a hint of Harlem Nocturne at the end of the A section phrase where it comes to that kind of major seven over the minor chord. Let's hear it get going. gets the bass pumping under DiCarlo's silky solo on this one. Kivadnej takes over on the B section for some piano, and then the bass gets another hard-driving solo before DiCarlo is back on the B section and A to some final held chords. And that's the recording. Impressive sax technique, but most of all, a fabulous tone on display from DiCarlo, from silky to searing. His compositions feature a lot of attractive minor melodies and different jazz styles, R&B infusion, and a variety of rhythmic feels. Exciting and well-structured solos. It's hard to match the excitement of the title track, though, um, as that is a real smoker. And this Turkish trio is terrific with tight interplay and superb solos from Kivanej on piano and Muzluolu on bass. Highly recommended. Yeah, I'd say that too. This might even be high consideration on the uh, 
10 months away uh, best jazz albums of oh, 2024 wow. <laughs> list. I can't say it is because we haven't heard yeah. like the rest of the year's albums yet, but uh, it's, it'll be considered. Let's just say that. It's a hot album. I actually wrote here that I, I think it melted the uh, Tarki Einan album that we heard earlier in the classical <laughs> section. Right, yeah. Because it was all stuff. icy yeah. and <laughs> yeah. sort of polar uh, temperatures on that, and I think mm. uh, this took that away. Yeah, the sax playing was electric, and especially, as you said, on track one. Yeah, I, I was saying he played really well. I, didn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying he carries the album, because I think uh, this is really a team effort here in yeah, a lot yeah. of ways, although he does a lot to pick everybody up with the sax solos. It's high energy throughout. There's a lot of life from the drums and bass, even on ballads. Yeah, the sax seems comfortable going into the high end and wailing, and we hear plenty of that. But not too much, you know, it's not going to turn you off by any means. The solos are all well-crafted, building in energy as they go, and it's true of the piano, too. Yeah, albums like this uh, cause global warming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially that first tune, wow. Yeah, hmm. wow. You know, he didn't even finish the first phrase until I was like already looking on the internet to see if there was a CD available, <laughs> and there is. Okay, so it's good to know. Well, there you go. Three really good and all very different saxophone recordings, but I enjoyed them all a lot. Yeah, a great week of music as always. Yeah, we had we had two and a half great uh, classical recordings too. <laughs> it should have, <laughs> but one great work on that other one. So what are you going to? Yeah, do? we did have one great work on that. As always, we want to say thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And remember, don't forget to check out the same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast can hear their little promo coming up once we finish up here. Next week, uh, what do you have on the schedule, Mike? I think I wanted to, you know, get back into the men. <laughs> so <laughs> I went for some. It's it's mid-February. I'm still mining that February 2nd release date. So mm -hmm. I've got... Uh, i got some good variety. i got a Baroque. and no No contemporary next week. Mm -hmm. But I've got a Baroque, uh, I've got close to contemporary though, Baroque stuff from uh, composers that are little known. We've got some Brahms cello sonatas, which are gorgeous works. And we've got a, a set of uh, works for cello and piano. So I've got like a cello theme going, I think, right. from multiple composers, including uh, Toto Takamitsu and George Walker. Walker recently died. He only died like two years mm. ago. So he, he could count as a 20th century, you know, almost contemporary composer. Cool. Yeah, so lots of cello. My favorite string instrument, so. Yeah, it's going to be a fun week. In jazz, the theme is going to be connections. These mm. are all recordings with connections to either record labels or musicians that we've had before. Yeah, so we're going to start out with a recording Pacilians, and that's going to feature Peter Garifas on piano. Now, we covered his debut release when we did our recent Budapest bop-in episode, I contacted Peter to put us in touch with one of the other musicians there. And he did. And he said, hey, I've got this new recording coming out. And so that came out. Actually, all three of these recordings just came out on Friday, officially. So we're going to check out Peter Garifuss's new album. And we've also got a new one from Outside in Music, Nick Finzer's mm -hmm. label. And we also know Simeon Davis, uh, who works over there as well. And uh, they sent us a little promo on this one. Trombonist Brian Scarborough, We Need the Wind. That just came out on Friday as well. So we'll be listening to that. And The Door is Open, The Music of Greg Hill by Randy Napoleon. Yeah. And this one has a really interesting 
story to it as to why we chose it. We'll tell you about that um, next week, so you have to stay tuned for that. Okay. But we got this a few weeks before it came out, and I think Greg Hill wants us to talk about it, and we're going to. Yeah. So three fresh recordings, and I'm looking forward to listening to them more. I've heard them all already, yeah. but I'm going to get into them, clean my ears, and dig deep to find I've out what's going I've only heard the Randy on. Napoleon so far. I haven't heard any of the classical right. ones, so i got to start listening this week. Yeah. All right, that's a lot of things coming up next week in episode 155. Wow. I'll have the playlist with all those recordings if you want to start listening early. That'll be up on Deezer a couple hours after this episode is published. Just look for us there, Adult Music Podcast. You can find all the playlists. There'll also be a link to it on our Facebook page as well. As I always ask, Mike, any final words for this episode? Yeah, when we have uh, 2,000 episodes, are we really going to be saying things like, yeah, way back on episode 754, we heard, <laughs> you know, are we going to be like that? I mean, I, I guess know. with computers, it's not that hard, but uh, I suppose, hopefully yeah. by then we'll have some uh, technical assistance. <laughs> That'd be nice, yeah. We have an intern, a little uh, staff assistant, hmm. secretary to help us out with all the uh, menial tasks <laughs> yeah. and all these notes. Research, yeah. It's getting pretty hefty. Yeah, we'll see. One by one, this has been episode 154 of Adult Music, and we'll be back with more next time for 155. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.